church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Thanks! ...in Turkey because of his faith in Jesus. Uh, Andrew and his wife began uh, doing ministry to Muslims in Turkey, uh, sharing the good news of Jesus with them 23 years ago. And uh, they have uh, enjoyed God's favor. Their church has grown. It's been amazing. But 18 months ago, they were both arrested. By the way, she was with him in prison for 14 days. They released her. Um, but he has remained in a prison cell with 14 other men in one cell. Uh, he is the only Christian there. Uh, he is harassed daily. Uh, and he goes before a judge tomorrow uh, to face verdict and sentencing. Uh, if found guilty of the fake charges, by the way. He's been accused of proselytizing Muslims. That's true. He has been sharing about Jesus uh, with them. He's also been accused of terrorism and an attempt to overthrow the Turkish government. That is not true. Uh, if he is found guilty on those charges, he will face 35 years in prison. And so our denomination has called together for today uh, for a fast and prayer. And... Uh, uh, I just said, of course, of course, right? And so I wanted to join with uh, the churches, the EPC churches around the world that are praying for Andrew today. I'm going to pray a prayer. You can learn more about this at epc.org. Uh, his name is Pastor Andrew. I cannot tell you everything that I know. We've been asked to keep many of the details secret for his safety. Uh, but there is some information that's public. But uh, you can join with us in praying. I want to pray a prayer that's being prayed prayed in churches just like ours this morning so we can join together. Would you pray with me as we ask the Lord for his help? Gracious Father, Lord of the nations, you are the only wise and good sovereign of our times. We praise you for your greatness and mercy. While we have not yet seen the answer to our prayers for Andrew's release, we trust you still that you are at work in ways beyond what we can see or understand. You have invited us to come boldly into your presence, and so we come before your throne of grace, asking that out of your glorious riches you would strengthen Andrew with power through your Spirit, so Christ may dwell in his heart by faith. Root and establish him in love, we pray, that he may grasp how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is for him. Let your word be a spring of living hope, the presence of Jesus, an oasis of joy, and the power of the Holy Spirit, Andrew's constant source of wisdom and comfort. Strengthen Andrew in body and mind. Expose and confuse all the lies that stand against him. Break the power of evil and cause truth to prevail. Let accusers become advocates. Set our brother free. Cause your gospel to spread widely. Grant endurance and comfort to his family. Glorify the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by whom we pray. Amen. It's an important reminder that the gospel does not advance without resistance in our world today. Um, hope you will join with me. I'll bring you news as I hear any of it uh, through our weekly update this week. Well, it almost feels uh, like an injustice just to turn the corner, doesn't it? Uh, 
Uh, I did not write this sermon with this moment in mind, so let me just see if we can get to the brevity of a usual humorous intro. Is that all right? Uh, When I was 20 years old, some buddies of mine uh, and I decided we were going to plant a church. And uh, we didn't know what we were doing at all. We just knew that we'd had this great youth group experience, and the church that we were now in was not the kind of place that we could bring our unchurched friends to. All right, so we, we, we kind of snuck guitars into the sanctuary. That made us suspicious. When, when we brought drums into the sanctuary, they were just certain we had invited Satan himself to church. You know, it's just like... So we said, you know, we need to start a church for our unchurched friends. And, and truthfully, we just wanted a place where they could come, be themselves, and learn about Jesus. I mean, that's, that's all we wanted. And so we, we started, and like I said, we didn't know what we were doing. We, we met in coffee shops when they were closed. We met in clubs and warehouses. Then we finally landed the best spot of all. Uh, one of the members of our church was renting an artist's loft on the roof, the rooftop of an old Pabst brewery. This is in downtown Los Angeles, about a mile from Dodger Stadium. It had been converted when the Pabst brewery had shut down. It had been converted into a bunch of apartments. And so we had the rooftop suite. And it was awesome. It was great. And we were bringing our friends, fantastic. We had about 70 or 80 people showing up for church every Sunday night. We did it on Sunday night because we figured nobody wanted to get up in the morning. So we did it Sunday night. And uh, it was really cool because people were starting to come to know Jesus. And they were making decisions to become Christians. The only problem is we hadn't planned on this. <laughs> and so we knew, because you know, we'd read the Bible, when someone became a Christian, the next step, the now what was, well, well they were to be baptized. I and mean, that's kind of what happens in the Bible. When you become a Christian, you, you get baptized. And we just, we didn't have a baptismal. Uh, we didn't have a tub. The apartment only had a shower. That seemed awkward. So we just, <laughs> we didn't know what to do. You know? And then one of our team members pointed outside and said, you know what? Because there was this old beer fermentation tank that had been converted into a swimming pool. And she said, can we baptize people in the beer tank? And we thought, I don't know, is that legal? You know, so we just said, ah, well, hey, let's, well, let's just go for it. And so we decided, we scheduled our first baptisms ever. And I still remember this day, my friend John and my friend Leslie, who'd made commitments to follow Jesus, they were both in their early 20s, they decide to get back, and we baptized them in this old Pabst beer fermentation tank. It was awesome. It's funny, uh, Leslie now lives in Atlanta with her husband and their kids, and we're still good, good friends with them. They visited here at Westlake. They're awesome. And we were down in Atlanta just about six months ago, and we'd had dinner, and we were sitting around in the living room when Leslie, out of nowhere, do you remember this? She said, do you guys remember my baptism? And I was like, Leslie, how, how could I forget your baptism? <laughs> you know? and, she, and then she said this word. She said, it was so powerful, I will never forget that day. Isn't that wild? Such is the power of baptism in the life of the believer, right? For the Christian, for the Christian who's put his or her faith and trust in Jesus and decides to get baptized... That single act of obedience marks us in a way that nothing else does. Nothing else can. So today I want to explore, what is this whole baptism thing about? Why is baptism so significant? And uh, I just want to be real clear up front, here's my not-so-secret agenda today, okay? So you kind of guys know what I'm after, right? Here's my not-so-secret agenda. If you are a Christian, you've put your faith and trust in Jesus but you have never been baptized, I want you to do that with us. 
I'm going to give you some instructions on how you can be a part of a baptism service we have coming up in just a few weeks. But if you are a Christian and you've never been baptized, I want, I'm speaking to you today. Okay? Now, if you're not a Christian and you're interested in becoming a Christian, putting your faith and trust in Jesus and getting baptized, I'm also speaking to you today. To the rest of you who've already been baptized, I'm speaking to you as a reminder of the significance of that step that you took. That's what we're talking about. Here, that's the critical now what step for us this morning. Now, uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give us, uh, I feel like we need to do a little bit of lesson because I'm not sure we often, though we all have opinions about baptism, right? We all have ideas about how it's supposed to be done or how it's not supposed to be done or you know, all this kind of we, we've never really considered the history of where this comes from. So I'm going to spend a few minutes laying out from the Bible, where did this idea of baptism start? And then I'm going to give us four things that I think we need to know as a church. So I just want to give you the outline up front. Where did this idea of baptism come from? And then I'm going to give us four things that I think we need to understand. Then we're going to watch a really cool video that lasts about 30 seconds, and then we're going to pray. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond on your connection card. We game? That's our plan for the morning, so let's jump in. Most famous words of Jesus would be in the end zone. Anyone want to guess? End zone, end zone theology? John 3.16, right? We always see John 3.16 in the end zone. For God so loved the world that he gave. You know the rest of it. Okay, so that's the most famous words of Jesus. But the second most famous words of Jesus are actually found at the end of Matthew's gospel. It's kind of like his final instructions to his guys right before he leaves this earth to return to be with his Father in heaven. Kind of like parents, kind of like the final instructions you give your kids right before you leave them with the babysitter, right? Like don't fight, don't paint the walls, don't build a fire in the living room. I mean, basic instructions for boys, right? So uh, here, here are his final instructions for the guys. Look what he says here. The 11 disciples went up to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. He's getting ready to go back to his father. When he saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Ooh, I love that honesty. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Here's his instructions. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, this word, disciple, is not a word we often use in everyday speech. It just means student, apprentice, or follower. Jesus says, listen guys, I want you to go and help other people learn how to follow me. And that means two things. First, you, everything I've been teaching you, Mark, John, y'all got your tablets out, I hope you're taking good notes, right? Everything I've been teaching you, you're to go and teach these new people, right? But I also want to do you, uh, you to do a second thing. I also want you to baptize them. Now, does this strike you as odd? Jesus leaves two things on his final instruction list. The first one we kind of get, hey, everything I've been teaching you, you guys teach them. Okay, we got that, Jesus, but what else? And I want you to baptize them. Jesus, what are you talking about? Baptize them. Well, see, Jesus uses a very, very interesting word here. He uses the Greek word, and we're going to do a little bit of Greek today because, you know, we're at church, so we can do some Greek. We're going, to, uh, we're going to learn this Greek word, baptizo. Everybody say it with me. Ready? Baptizo. Like, if you forget how to say it, say like, baptizo, like you're Italian or something, right? Well, you're Greek. But anyway, you get the idea. Baptizo, baptizo. What does the word baptizo mean? Well, in our day and age, the word baptized has kind of a religious tone to it, right? We only use this in religious contexts, really. But in Jesus' day, it was a very common word. It meant to 
wash, to dip, to soak, or to cleanse. To baptizo. So here's, here's, here's an example. In fact, there is a Greek philosopher named Nicander, who in 200 BC, 200 years before Jesus, was writing his philosophy in his journal one day, and then he got tired of writing philosophy, and he decided to write down his favorite pickle recipe. True story, you can check this out. And so he writes, here's how you make good pickles. You take a vegetable and you baptizo it in boiling water, and then you take it and you baptizo it in vinegar, which is proof that all pickles go to heaven. So... That was funny, wasn't it? That was good. That, I, like, I like that one. I like that one. Here, here we go. What's the point? This is a very common word in Jesus' day. It doesn't have any religious significance. Jesus and the New Testament give this common word its theological meaning. Prior to Jesus, baptizo just meant wash your car or whatever you were going to wash, right? In fact, the translators did not know what to do with this when they translated your English Bible. They didn't actually translate the word. They did something else. They transliterated the word. Now, you word geeks out there, all two of you, are going to love this. So uh, here's, here's how you translate. When you don't know what a word means, you can just translate each letter one for one to another letter, right? So baptizo, what sound does that begin with? B, B, B. So what letter in English? See, you're already Greek scholars. So B, and then alpha is A, and then, right, theta T. So you get, and so we get baptizo. I'm not sure how the O got changed to an E. Uh, maybe some anti-Italian sentiments or something. <laughs> Here's the point. Somehow, by the time we get to Jesus, this Greek word has taken on such significance that the translators don't have an equivalent word, so they just transliterate it, baptize. You see what I'm trying to set up here? Okay, now watch this. So where did all this come from? What's the background on this? Well, the Old Testament and Old Testament scholars tell us that there was a similar practice to Christian baptism that existed back in Israel's day. So imagine this. Imagine you're a businessman. You're from Ephesus. You're a Gentile. That means you're not a Jew. And you're working in Jerusalem. And some of your co-workers are Jewish and they worship this monotheistic God, Yahweh. And you're so struck by these guys' uh, righteousness. You're so struck by their fidelity, by their care for the poor and the widows. That you're thinking, man, I, I, can I get in on this? Like, can I become a Yahweh worshiper even though I'm not Jewish, right? So you ask your co-worker and he says, sure, let me introduce you to a, a lawyer. He's called a scribe and he can tell you how to do that. So you meet with the scribe, and the scribe tells you, well, there, there are five steps that you have to take to become a Yahweh worshiper, right? To be admitted into this community. And you say, okay, this is great, this is great. And the guy says, well, you know, if you can get past the first step, the rest are really easy. So well, what's the first step? Well, it's a, it's a little surgery, but we'll tell you about that later. Um, which was just further evidence that most of the converts were probably women. But... Uh, you, you could be a Gentile and you could actually become a Yahweh worshiper. And here's how. You, you did the little surgery. Uh, and then you, then you shared a, a covenant-type meal, right? This, this was a meal like Passover that taught you the story of God's people, the Old Testament. That's what the whole Passover meal was about. Then you had to acknowledge the Old Testament law. You might actually have to memorize things, like maybe the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, and then in some cases, uh, if they thought you were a really, really bad dude, probably from California, you had to make a sacrifice at the temple. And then finally, this is, and this is the point here, finally, after you've done all that, 
you would enter into a mikvah, that's, that's a, a pool, a ceremonial washing pool, and you would go through a ceremonial washing. Dan, do we have the photo of that mikvah? This is actually an ancient mikvah that exists today. Uh, they've dated it, they think, about 150 B.C. So you would go into this pool, and here, here's what you would do. It's really interesting. You would go in by yourself, and you would go through this ceremonial washing. Now, you didn't have any real dirt you were trying to get off. You were trying to... I was thinking about that. I'm going to wash that gray right out of my hair. Y'all remember that, right? So you're kind of like, you're going to wash that Gentile right out of your hair, right? It's like kind of, do you get a feel for that? You're going to, it was a symbolic act of washing away your sins, washing away your Gentile identity, so that you could take on this new identity as a Yahweh worshiper. Now, with all of that in the back. Oh, by the way, you know the word they used to describe that ceremonial washing? Baptizo. Yeah, see, you guys know it. Here we go. So with all that in the background, check this out. This, this blew my mind. We suddenly come to the New Testament, and one of the first guys we meet is Jesus' cousin, John. Now, John was a little bit different. John, John wore clothing made out of camel hair, he had a special diet. I mean, basically, he's from Asheville, right? It's kind of the... Um... I'm sorry if you're from Asheville. I love Asheville. I do. I do. Now, we laugh, but John was a remarkable guy. He was incredible. Uh, the, the, the people just flooded to him to hear his message. John had gone outside of the city, set up camp next to the river, and people were coming out to hear him teach. And this was his message. You ready what they were flocking to? You know what? They were so excited to go and hear John preach. Repent, repent, repent. Turn from your sins. Knock it off. The kingdom of God is coming. And they just kept coming. They're like, if I preached every Sunday, would you all come? You might, right? That's... This is not an easy message. But John said, listen, God is doing something brand new. Knock off doing all the stuff you're not supposed to do and get ready so you don't miss what's coming. And so they did. They flocked to him. But then John did something that nobody had ever done before. As a sign that they were taking his message seriously, John invited them into the river with him and then whatever happened there, we don't know. Maybe he dunked them. I don't know. Maybe he splashed them. Maybe he water ballooned them. We don't know what, right? Whatever. They left changed. They left different as a result of that. And John became known throughout the centuries as John the... John the washer. John the dipper. John the soaker. No one had ever done this before. No one had ever washed someone else. And then one day, just when it was like, couldn't get any weirder, because John's been saying it, hey, listen, there is, I, you think this is a big deal? I baptize right now with water for the repentance of sins, and that's good, and you guys need to stop sinning and all that stuff. But there is somebody else who's coming, who's converse, I'm not even worthy to untie. There is, some, there is somebody greater than me coming. And then one day, Jesus shows up and John goes, there he is. That's the guy I've been telling you about. He's the one I've been waiting for. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then Jesus, what does he do? 
He walks down into the water with John. And he says, John, I want you to baptize me. And this has got to be hilarious, right? John's like, no, 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 Jesus. You, you've got this wrong. Remember that whole converse thing? Like, I'm, you're supposed to baptize me, Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, John, I need you to baptize me. And because they're cousins, I imagine they probably rock, paper, scissored. And, of course, Jesus wins because he knows what John's going to do. And Anyway, so... So picture this, right? Jesus is in the water. Now we all know this, right? Baptism is a sin of the wash. Uh, is, uh, sorry, it's a sign of the washing away of your sins. Jesus was sinless. Why is Jesus getting baptized? Because while baptism is a sign that our sins have been washed away, baptism is also a sign that we are all in. Baptism is a public declaration of a new association a public declaration of a new association. I'm going to come back to that. But you see, when you went into the water with John, what you were saying is, I, Aaron, endorse this message, right? Like every political campaign we've seen. My name is Aaron, I'm in the water with John, and I endorse his message. Jesus got in the water and said, I'm Jesus, and I endorse this message. That's why Jesus got baptized. Now, Jesus shows us two things in this. First, because of his obedience, he is saying what John has been teaching you is exactly right. God is getting ready to do a brand new thing, and indeed it is here, and I am he. He's endorsing the message. But Jesus is also doing something else here. Jesus is giving us an example to all who would choose to follow him, that baptism is what marks someone as a follower of Jesus. Jesus gives us an example that we are to follow if we are to be a part of his community. And since that day, for the last 2,000 years, it has been the norm. You read the book of Acts everywhere. When someone becomes a Christian, the next step, the now what, is they are baptized. So, with the time that we have remaining, what does this mean for you and me today here at Lake Forest Westlake? What does this mean for us in 2018? I want to unpack four things that I think we can see from this story. First is this, I've already told you this. Baptism, baptism at its core, is a public declaration of a new association. Some of you grew up in churches. In fact, I had a friend cite this to me this morning. Uh, this is another way of saying that baptism is an outward and visible sign of an inner and spiritual grace. How many of all, y'all have heard something like that? Any, anyone? A little bit familiar. Hey, that's a good, that's a good start. You see, what's the point here? We live in a hyper-individualistic world. And the tendency for us is to think that faith, my faith, my spirituality, my religion is a private matter, right? You, you shouldn't have anything to do with it, and nor should I force you to have anything to do with my religious convictions. That it's just between me and Jesus. But baptism reminds us that the Scriptures think otherwise. Baptism reminds me that our commitment is not only personal, it is also public. That while baptism is deeply, deeply, deeply personal, it is never private. The best illustration I know of this comes from weddings, and I just love, and specifically wedding rings. 
Uh, as a pastor, one of my favorite things is I get to stand right here as two couples just sweat in nerves as they're making their vows to each other. You know, it's, it's beautiful. It is sacred space. I love it. Uh, but there always comes this moment, right, where, where they're going to exchange their rings. Now, why do we wear wedding rings? Why do we wear wedding rings? Well, because they are a sign of the commitment that we made to each other when we exchanged our vows, right? They point to the commitment that we made. In fact, I have a friend in L.A., she's single, and she tells me, this just cracks me up, she says, she only worships at charismatic churches. She said, I just love it because everyone raises their hands during worship so I can tell who's single and who's married. <laughs> Little trick for you, single folks, right? That's just, right? Just, that's just how it works. She's just keeping it real. You see, wearing a wedding band, wearing a wedding band is a public statement, right? It's a public statement. And by the way, if I take my wedding band off, am I somehow not married? No, I'm still on the hook for those vows I made. But a wedding ring is a public statement of that commitment. And that's exactly what baptism is. So in Acts, I already mentioned this, people are constantly being baptized. Philip meets an Ethiopian on the road. What does he do? He makes a public declaration. He gets baptized. Uh, Peter preaches to a crowd of 3,000, Acts chapter 2. They, they become believers that day. What do they do? They all make a public declaration. They get baptized. Cornelius, the Roman soldier, has Peter over for dinner, if you know this story. Cornelius becomes a Christian, and he and his whole house get baptized. His wife, the servants, the kids, everyone makes this public declaration of their new association. That's the first thing that we see about baptism. Second thing builds on the first. The second thing I think we need to know is that baptism is about what Jesus has done, not what we do. Baptism reminds us that sin is a very real problem. It is. Sin is something we are born into. Every one of us carries the mark of sin on us. And that sin separates us from God both now and for eternity. And unless something is done to redeem that, to reconcile that, we will stay in that state of separation from God. Call it separation, call it hell, call it whatever you want. That's what it is. We are broken in our relationship with God. Baptism reminds us that Jesus has solved that dilemma for us. Baptism is a reminder of what Jesus has done. Now, I want to be clear here, because a lot of people will say, Aaron, does that mean that I have to be baptized to be saved? And the answer is no. Baptism is a sign of what Jesus has done to save us. Let me see if I can prove it to you. Paul says it this way. He says, we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of ourselves, but it is a gift of God. That is grace. We simply receive the work that Jesus has done for us. But this is actually one of the coolest things in baptism too, because baptism points to the very thing Jesus did to redeem us. Look at this. This blows my mind. This is from Romans 6. Don't you know, he says, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now let me show you what Paul's doing here. What Paul is saying is that when we are baptized, it's like we are retelling, rehearsing 
the work that he did through his death and resurrection. In fact, my old church in L.A. was this old church. I mean, it had this beautiful 70s decor, shag carpet. I mean, it was awesome. Uh, Yellow and orange and pink. It was, oh my word. Uh, But they had a baptismal, that's a tank, built into the wall. And uh, what was really cool, you know, you'd pull back these accordion doors, kind of revealing. Some of y'all grew up in churches like this. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Big old tank there. And my colleague, Matt, and I, we used to refer to it as the hot tub. Because it was fun just to sing, you know, hot, too hot, hot tub. Anyway, that's, uh, anyway, James Brown. So, uh, uh, so we, there was a little switch that would turn on the hot tub to warm it up. And the problem is, it didn't have a thermostat. So if you forgot to turn off the switch... When you baptized people, it was like that poor pickle going in that boiling water. I just, it was bad. Uh, so uh, anyway, we called it the hot tub. But what was really cool is that this tub was set at eye level. So I want, I want you to imagine the surface of the tub is right about here, right? In other words, you, you couldn't see into the tub from where you were seated. But you could see the head and, and kind of the waist and up of the person who's getting ready to be baptized. And so when they would be baptized, it literally looked like they were going underground into the grave where you couldn't see them anymore. And then they would be raised up, resurrected to new life. And it was the first time that I saw what Paul was talking about. When we are baptized, it's like we are rehearsing the death and resurrection of Jesus that washes away our sin. Do you see what he's getting at there? Baptism is a pointer, a reminder, a signifier, a sign, a giant honking arrow pointing to what Jesus has done, not what we do. We are not saved through baptism. We are saved by Jesus. So, point number three. Point number three I think we need to learn. We know baptism is a public declaration. Baptism is about what Jesus has done. Baptism is all about worship. It's all about worship. Uh, And I just love this. For centuries, the church has referred to baptism as what's called a sacrament. Now, some of you grew up in churches where that word was used often. A sacrament is something, an ordinance or an order or a command, a practice that we received directly from Jesus. In our church, there are two of them. Communion, right, when we break bread and juice and we do that whole thing, you've probably been here for that and baptism. Both of them were given to us by Jesus. Both of them remind us of the work that Jesus has done. Both of them are acts of worship. But here's what's really cool about sacraments and a little bit mysterious. There's something about a sacrament that uniquely connects us to God. There's something mystical. There's something mysterious. I dare say something spiritual that happens through these sacraments. And that's what, for centuries, the church has recognized by calling baptism a sacrament. Uh, I love how Howard Vanderwell describes it in the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship. He writes this, the sacrament of baptism in the worship life of the church is a richly symbolic action through which God intends to assure us, comfort us, nourish us, and challenge us. The celebration of baptism can stir our imaginations to better understand his work and the richness of the gospel. Isn't that powerful? This is why when someone comes to me and says, Aaron, you know, I'm, I'm an introvert, and I'm sorry, like I know half of y'all are introverts, and when I make you do that greeting thing, you're like, I'm ready to quit church all over again. Yeah, I'm, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. 
Uh, I love introverts. Uh, but you come and say, can I just like, can you just come over to my house and like we just do a little baptism thing in my pool? You know, is that okay? Here's why I, I try to avoid that. Because there's something beautiful about baptism that is a gift to the church. When you are baptized as part of a church worship gathering, it is not simply you who are reconnected to God. It is all of us who participate in your baptism with you. We all get to share in that moment, remembering our baptism, remembering what Jesus has done for us, and it strengthens us as a community. Baptism is a profound act of worship, and thus your baptism is a gift to your church as well. Which leads us to our fourth and final thing that I think we need to understand about baptism. And that is this. That baptism is about a new spiritual family. See, the Bible teaches that we aren't just baptized, we are baptized into. Did you know that? We are baptized into Christ. We are baptized into the family of God, the church. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 3. He writes, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Baptism is a kind of initiation into the community of faith. It's our way of saying, welcome to the family. Baptizo, right? Because when you get baptized here at Westlake, Part of what happens is that the church, the family of God, doesn't just hear the promise you make to them, the promise you make to God. They make a promise to you. It's the same idea that we see in the wedding ceremony where vows are exchanged. In fact, if you've ever seen a baptism, I actually call them our baptismal vows. They're promises we make to each other. That when one person suffers, we all suffer. That when one person rejoices, we all rejoice. Just like a family, we are in it together. Now, there are probably a couple of questions that have stirred for you during this time, and you're hoping I'm going to answer them. So let me see if I can stab at just a few before we start to wrap up here. First question is this. Uh, Aaron, is this a sprinkling church or a dunking church, right? That's been on the... How many years of wait, waiting for me to answer? Here we go, right? Here we go. Which is to say, the real question that you're asking when you ask that is, how much water does it actually take, right? I mean, how much, how much water? And I go, well, how bad is your sin? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm teasing. I'm teasing, right? You see, the point is not the amount of water, is it? I mean, think about this. There have been Christians in places in this world where it would have been hazardous to their health, possibly deathly, for them to immerse themselves in water in order to be baptized, right? Now, look, I'm a big fan of immersion. I've just told you that, right? I just told you. But, but, but I think we've got to recognize this, this may not be uh, transferable to all contexts. Nor would you be really excited if when I'm baptizing your baby, I went like, whoosh, right? That's probably not going to be real good for the baby. Uh, reminds me of my five-year-old swim lesson. 
Here's, here's, here's what I, I want you to know about us as a church. We, for us, this is a non-essential issue. In other words, this is not a hill we are going to die on. Right? We practice both sprinkling and dunking. We think we see both in Scripture. We're just a both-and kind of church. Now, that said, I have a bias towards dunking. Why? Because of the reenactment of Jesus' death and resurrection. There is something powerful about that. I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. Second question that some of you are wondering right now uh, is, Aaron, what about babies? Right? I, I know Presbyterians, they're, they're baby baptizing churches, and we are here at Westlake. So what's up with that? Well, uh, if you grew up Methodist uh, or Presbyterian or Episcopalian or Lutheran or in a Catholic home, this will be very, very familiar to you. If you grew up Baptist, Quaker, Mennonite, or Vulcan, uh, this, might seem a, this might seem a little odd. Um, I'm, te- I'm teasing about the world. This, here, here's the thing. Uh, this has been so divisive in the history of the church. And it almost seems to miss the point, right? Because it's not about baptisms, it's about Jesus. Baptism is supposed to point to something else, and yet we get deterred by the very thing that's simply meant to be an arrow sign. Do you see what the problem is there? So here, here's, here's how we answer it. And if you grew up uh, in one of those uh, adult-only baptizing churches... Man, I I totally respect that. Absolutely. I just want you to know that we have some thinking behind how we do it here. You don't have to agree with this, but I want you to understand a little bit of the thinking. Uh, First of all, Paul puts it this way. Um, Oops, that's, yeah, is that right? No, here we go, sorry. Um, What we see in the Bible is we see that children are sometimes baptized in conjunction with their parents' faith. Uh, that's the case I cited for you from Acts chapter 9, Cornelius, when his, he comes to faith and his entire family is baptized. It, it, it's a little shady. We're not sure. You can argue it both ways. Here's the big idea. The scriptures neither command nor prohibit infant baptism. It's just not an issue they speak to, which means we kind of have to do our best to think smartly about it. What the scriptures do say uh, in Acts chapter 2 is something that has served as the basis in many ways for this practice. Peter has just finished preaching to those 3,000, and they respond to him, Acts chapter 2, Brothers, what, what shall we do? We want to believe in this. Peter says, well, here's what you do. You repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now, here's how Christians have thought about this in that time. They they look at this promise that Peter mentions, a promise for our children through baptism somehow, and they connect it to the practice of circumcision, which was a sign of the old covenant that was done to infants. And they say, well, maybe there's some connection there. Here's what infant baptizing churches do not believe. We do not believe that baptizing a baby saves a baby any more than we think baptizing an adult saves an adult. A baby that is baptized will yet need to come to place his or her own faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Is that clear? So when we baptize a baby, excuse me, when we baptize an adult, we are looking backwards towards that decision. When we baptize a baby, we are looking forward in hopes, in anticipation, in prayer, and in hard work that parents and we as a church might raise that child to come to a place where they would know Jesus as their personal Lord, as their Savior. 
That's about as clear as I can make it. If you have more questions, I welcome the conversation. This is not an essential issue for, you, for us. Uh, I, I leave it up to parents to decide. Do they want to baptize that child, participate in it? Would they rather wait? We have done both. What's most exciting about this to me, I want to tell you about as we finish up, is our foundations class. Right now, literally right now, tonight, we will have week two of our foundations, which is a class for our fifth graders. Our remix groups are going through it as well. But this is the opportunity for our fifth graders to come to a place where they would decide, I'm ready to put my faith and trust in Jesus. And as part of that, we give them an opportunity to be baptized if they have not been baptized. And it is absolutely one of my highlights as a pastor. I don't think there is anything more important than the work that we do for these fifth graders. And I wanted you to just see a snippet of our baptism from last year's foundation class. Take a look at this. Give me your heart, give me your song, sing it with all your might. Come to the fountain and you can be satisfied. There is a peace, there is a love, you can get lost inside. Come to the fountain and let me hear you testify. Into the wild, canyons of you. Watch it, here it comes. Death and resurrection right before you. Is that awesome? Is that awesome? Yeah, yeah, yep. Now, here's the good news, because I know some of you are all thinking there, Aaron, I'm not a fifth grader, right? <laughs> we are bringing baptism from the lake to you, only we're not using lake water. We're using filtered water from Lincoln Charter. We have a service planned. We have a service planned for May 6th. We're bringing in a tub. We're going to have it out on the grass. We are going to offer it in both services It's an opportunity for all of us together to celebrate this. And here's the question. If you are a Christian and you have not been baptized, my friend, why would you not take that step? What's holding you back? My friend Leslie said it best. She said there was something about that day that marked me that I will never forget. That my sins had been forgiven. That the death that I had to die, Jesus has died that for me. 
that I'm, I will one day be resurrected to eternal life with God. And through this act of baptism, I get to say thank you. I get to say I am all in with Jesus. And I get to worship Him for His grace and goodness. And if you want to be a part of that, what's holding you back? Here's the action step for you. Here's the challenge. You've got one song to think about this. You ready? You've got four minutes. Everyone take out your connection card. I want to show you. Just take it out. Right on this tear-off card right here. Right at the bottom. Everyone see the word baptizo right there at the bottom? Baptizo. If you would like to take this step or just learn more about this or you have questions. Aaron, I'm still confused about that child thing. I just need to talk. Man, you put it on there. You give me your name, your email, phone number. You check that baptism and we will be in touch with you this week. Don't miss out on this exciting opportunity to take this step of faith with God.